Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. Once again, I am Paul Juris, and I'm here with Gregory Gordon. And hello, and we are at the penultimate episode of our season three, which has been dedicated to skill. What do you think? We're we're almost done here, Gigi. Yeah, well, it's certainly been an interesting ride and heard a lot of different perspectives along the way, which is, you know, the whole point of doing the podcast. Absolutely. And there's been some great discussion. And what we've done to this point is really talked about all these facets of skill, these elements of skill throughout the season. And and now we're really going to get into an interesting conversation, uh, not about skill per se, but about how do we evaluate it and what tools do we have to assess it? And also, which is really an interesting theme, is we're looking at the whole assessment process as an entity unto itself and mm-hmm. sort of kind of picking at the scab a little bit at some of the things that we see are problematic with movement screens and assessments, right? Yeah, and particularly in the fitness arena, because, you know, clinically, if you go, if you're going to have back surgery, you know, there's sort of uh, evidence-based proven things that a spinal surgeon might test. Or if you go to, uh, let's say, physical therapy, there's assessments they might use in physical therapy. But, you know, movement assessments as a whole, and we'll get into it in this episode, if you're looking at it with a critical eye, I think it's fair to say at a minimum, you know, there's a lot that could be um, considered differently. And especially when you take it into the fitness arena and the assessments that um, a lot of us have seen and have done as trainers, um, when you look at that with the critical eye, wow, you really see uh, some room for improvement. Yeah, so we have a guest with us today who is presenting an alternative that we think is really fascinating and it's really meaningful in a way because we think it's probably a much better approach to working with our clients and on top of it it's something as a tool that is going to make we as practitioners 
better at what we do. So it's uplifting for everyone. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest today who's going to help talk about this? I would love to. So PJ, our guest today is Dr. Patrick Welsh, who is an exercise physiologist, strength and conditioning coach, and a sports specialist chiropractor. Patrick is the co-director and head of research at Athletic Movement Assessment. He's the sports chiropractor at the High Point Wellness Center and a part-time clinician at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. So in addition to his clinical duties, Dr. Welsh is also a published researcher in the area of musculoskeletal assessment and diagnosis. Along with his colleague at AMA, Dr. Brian Weinberg, he is passionate about teaching healthcare practitioners how to navigate the complex task of managing athletic injury and performance. Patrick joins us today to discuss his perspectives on how movement assessments can impact motor skill acquisition and development. All right, so let's get into our conversation. Do it. So Patrick, welcome to Fitness for Consumption. Thank you. I am uh, a big fan and glad to be here. <laughs> we're, we're glad yeah. you're a fan. And, and trust me, we're a yeah. big fan of yours as well. Um, it's great to have you with us on the show. And, you know, what we do as a tradition with all of our guests is we ask them to tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get started in the field that you're in? Uh, when did you decide you wanted to do that? What was your path? And how is it that you had the dubious honor of sitting here with us doing this recording today? <laughs> so, you know, give us a little history, if you don't mind. Sure. I mean, I grew up playing a, a variety of sports, uh, hockey, baseball, a lot of basketball, and that sort of naturally led me towards a, some sort of degree or higher education in healthcare. And so it, basically in the end, when I get to where I am today, it looks like it was a well thought out plan, but it actually became just a series of natural progressions. And mm -hmm. I did my degree in kinesiology, majored in exercise physiology, and at that time, I actually was working as a personal trainer. And my fitness manager got me connected with this uh, chiropractic neurologist. And he was doing a lot of really uh, cutting edge things, really was someone who thought outside of the box, which I really enjoyed. And he ultimately sort of got my interest in chiropractic. From there, after eight years of post-secondary, I'm a glutton for punishment. I did a, a two-year postdoc in sports sciences. Hmm. And that really helped me focus um, you know, further in the, in the literature, the evidence-based practice, and uh, also did a bit of teaching and research along the way. So that's kind of where I'm at. I pri uh, practice privately in the greater Toronto area and luckily got connected with you guys through some of the teaching that I do. Patrick, where did you do your postdoc? This was in Toronto at the uh, chiropractic college here. So it's just a, a two-year specialty. We do a bit of teaching, a bit of research. Um, and then some coursework as well, and, and quite a, a few placements that really focus on us being part of an interdisciplinary team. Like we do a bit of uh, surgical um, uh, sort of placements and other field placements as well. A lot of sideline activities uh, in the sports field. And is I'm not totally familiar with chiropractic neurology. So is that like a, um, a special program that you would go to in a chiropractic school, it's like another couple years of education specific for that. Or can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a sort of a 
Um, there are subspecialties within a lot of professions. Like if you think about a, a physician being a, a sports, phys- a sports mm-hmm. medicine doctor. Mm-hmm. So it's similar to that regard. Uh, it, it began in the, in the U.S. and now it's come up to Canada as well. And they focus on a lot of uh, areas related to brain function. Um, they do concussion testing. They do a, a handful of things that are really quite uh, interesting uh, and something that I haven't done myself, but it's something that I'm very interested in. And still operating within the boundaries of being a chiropractor. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's kind of a small world that we all work in. And, you know, my story isn't too dissimilar from yours, except my progression was very chaotic. I think yours mm-hmm. was a little bit more linear, it seems. But um, I went through the wild gyrations of doing one thing and then another. But then, you know, we actually, from through a mutual friend of ours, Brett Fisher, who I hope we can someday get on the show with us, um, he introduced us, and I'm glad that he did, uh, because I've certainly learned a lot from you in our conversations over oh, at least the last two years, which have been really interesting to me. So we definitely want to get into the content of our show. Let me remind all of our listeners that this season has been all about skill, and we're going to tie what you do mm-hmm. into skill acquisition. But as we've also asked all of our guests leading up to this episode uh, to weigh in on what they think is the most difficult skill in sport. So we're going to put you on the spot here just for a minute and tell us what you think that is and why. Well, I've done some thinking about this and I'm going to end up turning the tables back on you guys. (laughs) Oh, Oh, not fair. If you... If you had asked me 10 years ago... The famous I w- question with a question. <laughs> yes, that's right. 10 years ago, I probably would have said what I had found on Google or heard from someone else, and that's hitting yeah, uh, a, round, a, a round ball with a round bat, okay? Definitely. Um, over time, um, and my, my research and my experience working uh, in hockey at all levels has me biased there, and you think about, you know, what are the demands, what, what is required of a hockey player, and you... You know, we really have to talk about the definition of skill if we're going to answer this question, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're on an unstable surface or a low friction surface. You're mm-hmm. working with some sort of object at the end of the stick, like something like a, uh, a one-timer in hockey would certainly be uh, a possibility. Now, uh-huh. after I thought about that, I was thinking, well, what's more difficult? Is it shooting the one-timer or is it... Uh, saving a deflected slap shot and we can talk about you know uh, luck and, and other things here and is it even likely that if someone deflects it really close to the net you have an opportunity or not but that's so sort of the, let's yeah. just be clear as a lot of people in our audience may not watch hockey but a deflected slap shot if i understand correctly is the performer hits a slap shot it actually bounces off something someone or something else changes the trajectory of the puck and now the puck is, is like if the goalie was setting up for the initial trajectory, it has to change because it's been deflected off someone or something. That's right. And sometimes uh, a player on the, on the offensive side is intentionally doing that and they're deflecting oh, with their really? stick. But other times uh, it's actually just accidentally hitting someone. So mm-hmm. we look at reaction time there and, and a, whole, a whole host of other things. But when we look at the definition of skill and being able to uh, perform a task consistently mm-hmm. and with a degree of economy. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to also consider 
what is the time course of this skill? If you look mm -hmm. at hitting a baseball, you look at doing a slap shot, mm -hmm. these are sort of short time frames in which those skills occur. Mm -hmm. But what about being having to do those repeatedly under different situations, under fatigue, under mm -hmm. cognitive load? Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea that I had is a little bit different of an answer than I would uh, have thought of previously. But I think about the Formula One driver who has so much speed, so much precision. It's actually very physical to control that steering wheel. Every, week, uh, every race, they're in a different location. Sometimes it's wet. The tires have to be different. There are so many variables involved there. The cognitive demand, the physical demand are both there. To me, that is actually one of the most challenging skills. And the, the other way we could look at this is how many guys shoot a one-timer? How many guys can hit a home run? hundreds in the, at the professional level. In Formula One, there's only 20 guys. So if there's only 20 guys can do it, that would make it a pretty special skill and therefore a very difficult skill to do. Uh, you know, Patrick, it's, it's interesting when you look at maybe non-traditional sports. In, when we think about sports, we do think about balls and round objects and flat pucks and things like that. And, you know, certainly Formula One driving can be considered a sport and I agree with you when you have an instant in time to make a decision and make contact with an object that's very different from having to make decisions constantly for two and a half hours and I think the interesting part there for me is they're doing this at speeds up to 180 miles per hour and so the time that you have available to make a decision is so short and so that's the thing. There's, a, there's an inordinate amount of stress that I think is imposed on drivers when they have to make those kinds of dis decisions so quickly for so long under those conditions. Uh, so clearly, it's a very, very demanding skill. And rightly so. There are only 20 drivers in the world that could do it. So to be at the top of the list of performers at that level is quite exceptional. I'm a Max Verstappen fan myself. Um, so, you know, so, um, yeah, I, you know, I watch these guys and it's really incredible. The Red Bull team and I mean, all of the Mercedes team, they're really incredible athletes. And I can understand why you would think that would be the most difficult skill. So let's take that into the conversation that we have for our episode this week. And we're talking about skill, and you have created something uh, that is called the Athletic Movement Assessment. And so this episode is really about assessment. And one is we want you to tell us something about, like, what is the Athletic Movement Assessment? And also sort of let's get into a conversation of how does the concept of assessment fit into the discussion on motor skill? And then what have you done in your practice to sort of infuse motor skill into the process that you've created? So if you would take us through AMA a little bit so that our listeners can understand what you do. Sure. So, I mean, AMA was built uh, sort of out of the frustration with some of the limitations of traditional movement screens. And while certain movement screens certainly have their, their utility, um, both in the clinical and the training environment, 
by definition, a screen is looking for the presence or absence of some sort of disease or condition. It's not actually looking at how or why someone is moving the way they're moving. And so our paradigm is looking at the how and the why because that ultimately gives us the now what? What do we do with this information? And so we're really just trying to see how people use their bodies um, within a given constraint system, whether that's just their activities of daily life or their sport. And from that, we can do the things we want to do. And that's either manage an injury, mm -hmm. mitigate risk as best as possible. And, and we, we don't really talk about prevention as much as risk mm -hmm. reduction. Mm -hmm. um, and then enhancing performance as best as we can. And if we can do a little bit of any of those things, we've gone a long way to help our our clients and our patients. You know, I, mentioning the how and the why, I think for a lot of people, a screen or an assessment uh, is really supposed to divulge what, like what happened. And then the rest of it comes from a formula or a recipe that says, well, if this is what happened, then this is what you do. And I like what you're talking about here because it's not really doing that. You're trying to figure out, well, why is someone moving like that in the first place? Not whether what they're doing meets certain preordained criteria. Is that a fair description of your approach? That's absolutely right, because what we talk a lot about is confounding variables. There are so many in a complex system, that is the human body, mm -hmm. that's human movement. There are so many variables that are influencing the outcome, many of which we can't account for. We mm -hmm. have to try to account for as many of the variables that we mm -hmm. can. And so we can't set very strict parameters um, when comparing different populations, different age groups, different sports. We can't look at how a 10-year-old developing athlete moves the same way as a 68-year-old moves. They have different expectations, they have different needs, they have different mm -hmm. goals. And so it's very difficult to reduce uh, a screen uh, all the way down to just five or six moves and, and hope to get enough useful information from that to um, really dictate what you're going to do from a treatment or training perspective. Yeah, Patrick, to take it from the fitness perspective when I was coming up as a trainer, so I saw a lot of different assessments, but in the fitness realm, it's typically one or the other, which is it's some version of a pseudo-physical therapy movement analysis kind of thing, or it's the biggest loser TV show where you're setting someone up to fail, where you're putting them on a 10% grade on a treadmill, having them run to 12 miles an hour, so kind of two extremes. And um, one thing that was never really talked about, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it, is from the biopsychosocial perspective, beyond the biology, just the psychology and the environment of someone that knows they're being assessed and may or may not be a professional athlete, and how that affects your decision making when you're seeing them move for the average person, and they know someone is watching them with a critical eye, that can obviously impact the way they move. So just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever been uh, in front of a large crowd of people or if you've walked in, and there's a bunch of people behind you, you might feel like you're moving a little bit differently. So certainly people will behave differently in, in different environments. Mm -hmm. And we think about your point a lot about um, with our young athletes, our developing athletes, that, you know, they're coming in for an assessment, they got their peers with them or mm -hmm. they got their parents watching. 
you know, we, we have to take these things into account in our judgments and our interpretations of what we see. So it's very important to get a sense of, of what this athlete is made of, where they're coming from. Um, what can you expect from a novel, like a novice mover, a mm-hmm. 10, a 12 year old, someone with not a lot of sport experience versus, you know, someone who has a ton of gym experience versus someone who's never exercised their whole life. They are mm-hmm. going to have a different way of approaching this. And you want to build people up where ultimately all of us are trying to get people to move more, exercise more. Mm-hmm. So you can frame your assessments in, in a way that actually is not a pass-fail environment. And that is, a, that is again, the screening model, the pass-fail. Mm-hmm. Can right. you do this or not? We're not asking that question. We set out some parameters and see what you do with it because the trends that you show us tell us what you do with your body. And that's all we're trying to find out because what you do with your body can give us some information into your injury risk, can give us some information into why you have this type of injury, or can give us some information into what we should do to make you better at whatever it is you do. You know, there's an interesting part of that because the implication... And then my inference from Gigi's question was that when you put someone in front of a group and they're sort of in the fishbowl, they're in the spotlight, there's a possibility that what you see, may see emerging is not indicative of a level of health or a level Absolutely. of function or a level of anything other than the fact that somebody's really stressed out because everybody in the room is looking at them. And you mentioned... Absolutely this notion of confounding factors, which I want to explore a little bit as we get into the conversation, because most assessments that I've seen don't allow for that. What they, to your point, Patrick, what they do is say, here, do this. Did you do it the way we expect? No. Okay. You fail. You get, you know, one out of three points. And, you know, I asked someone who is involved in an organization that promotes this kind of a screen you know, where is it written that if someone does something that you don't expect them to do, that it's wrong? And I'm wondering, how do you consider that? Or do you consider that in the process of developing your screens? Yeah, we absolutely don't don't ascribe to this, this sort of scored system and pass fail. And I guess the best way to explain it is through an example. And I Great. think, you know, there's endless amounts of literature on ACL injuries, and yet, you know, over time, we, we really haven't gotten that much better at predicting or preventing ACL injury. There's certainly a whole bunch of reasons we could discuss as to why that is, increased sport participation and high training volume, but there, there's some sense that maybe a neuromuscular training program done a few days a week has some protective benefit, but we still haven't found the you know the magic wand on, on fixing this oh, problem. Share that with Odell so, Beckham Jr. I'm sure he would love to get this information, right? Mm-hmm. So you know when we people used to talk a lot about dynamic knee valgus and that sort of that knee diving in as a as a risk factor. Well, most people when I ask them how much is too much, nobody can really tell me. Like when is it too much and when is it okay? Mm-hmm. So there's a a continuum we cross where, yeah, you can see it when it's like full dynamic knee valgus but, and when someone's completely straight, but there's a, a big gray zone right. in the middle. Mm-hmm. But further to that, I don't necessarily care about that in every single 
um, patient or client in front of me. And so we know from the literature that there's a significant uh, increased prevalence of ACL injuries in adolescent mm -hmm. females, particularly when they are in the pre-ovulatory phase of their menstrual cycle. So when do I care about dynamic knee valgus? When my 13-year-old soccer player in that mm -hmm. phase and maybe someone who is playing in a tournament on turf but who's only trained on grass their whole life. When I worked at a, a multi-sport games a number of years ago, some of the northern uh, the, the territories came down uh, to Ontario to participate in uh, a soccer tournament. And we had six ACL injuries on the McMaster turf in one oh day. Goodness. And those were all people who had never been on turf before. So those are the other factors that you know, we can't just say one of these things is needs to be corrected. We have to say who's the person and under what conditions. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. so, so Patrick, let me ask you a really dumb question. Why do we assess? So we've just, I think we've made it clear, and PJ and I have spoken about this a lot, that injury prevention is just not really possible. And again, he brought up a great example of Odell Beckham Jr. Anyone that watched the Super Bowl this year, you watch that play that where he ended up tearing his ACL, there's nothing really obvious other than his reaction to his movement that he tore his ACL. It's not like he got direct contact with the knee. It just, you know, there's a bunch of variables that created that position at a certain time that tore his ACL. But some would say, all right, so look, if you can't prevent injury, why even assess? Why even bother? So why do we assess? Why do we bother with this? Well, the the point I go back to I made at the beginning is about all of the reasons we're looking for certain information. We're looking to manage injuries that have already occurred. We're looking to enhance performance when that's the goal. So those two reasons are separate from risk reduction. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that there's probably a portion of risk reduction that understanding biomechanics of movement is going to play a role in. It's certainly not the only one. And in some injury patterns in some sports, it might not even be the most important one. But we know that a lot of athletes these days spend a lot of time in the gym. If we have some data from the literature that says, this might be one piece of that, that injury profile, mm -hmm. and we can address it, then we're gonna go after that. So what we do in our models, we have our principles and we constantly backfill our understanding as new literature comes out and we apply that uh, as is necessary. So if something comes out and says, hey, you know, uh, you know, if you have too much pronation of your foot, it's a risk factor for, you know, a groin strain. Like, we'll look at that and see mm -hmm. how can we fit that into our model. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a real example, though. Just well, clear. I think we're going to have to get into some more concrete examples because I'm sure our listeners are really fascinated by this process because it is a process. It's not just a series of steps. In fact, in one conversation we had, uh, you suggested that there is no one assessment for everybody, and you may do a different assessment on the same person depending on what you see. So what I really like about the process is that it's not a series of steps or a recipe. What it is is a toolbox that you can use in order to better understand this person who's in front of you and what they're doing and why. And, and just as another example, you know, I was watching the NFL Combine, and I don't know if you guys saw it, but David Ojabo, I mean, it, so the, the linebacker from Michigan who oh, is you yeah, know, projecting I, yeah. to go in the high first round, 
he's doing his the pro day at Michigan. It wasn't the combine; it was the pro day at Michigan, and he planted his foot in the turf and tore his Achilles, just like that. I mean, how do we prevent something like that? We think he doesn't have a good trainer. You know, he doesn't have a good strength and conditioning coach. Of course he does. But yet this happened. And, you know, assessing people for injuries in order to prevent them, I think, is a very scary thing because I'm sure everybody wanted to prevent this. I mean, you know, everything that he's done in his collegiate career, I'm sure in the back of their minds, they're doing things to prevent injury. And yet he gets injured anyway. So I'm not sure that we can do that. But in using this as a model to better understand motion and furthermore, those influences of the output, the output being the motion that we see, I think that's a really fascinating approach to what you're doing and what we can ultimately learn from it, which is why I'm so excited about um, what this is and sharing it with our listeners. Who should be doing this? I mean, this is Gigi. I'm stealing your question here. I apologize, but it's like right there in front of my face. Who should be doing this? Well, I think there's a, a role that almost anyone involved, if we're talking about sport, I think there's different roles for all practitioners, whether you're the personal trainer, the strength coach, you spend a lot of time with, with the athlete. Those people often spend the most time with the athlete. Uh, certainly clinicians coming off, you know, treating someone with an injury, they're going to want to be able to assess. And ideally, those people are speaking a common language. Even though they're going to have different education, that trainer and strength coach and that physio and that chiro and that sports MD should all be understanding movement, the movement component of it at a, in a similar way. So I think the difference would be then what, knowing what your scope of practice is and what you're going to do with that information. We might look at someone moving and see very similar things, but the tools we have to intervene on it and the interpretations that we have on it may differ slightly. Certainly someone who is a, a trainer is not going to be doing some sort of you know, uh, intervention that's outside of their scope of practice. So I think there's a place for everyone and just understanding uh, what how and what you would interpret, and then what interventions you would choose from that. Patrick, let me ask you a question about that. And it's related to the agency of the actual person that's coming in, because I think I, I know I'm guilty of it. And I think a lot of health professionals are guilty of taking a client or patient or however you classify it and talking at them as if like they're not part of this process. And it reminds me of this sign. So in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, there's a whitewater rafting place and I went there and they have a sign that says you must be an active participant in your own rescue and I wanted to get that sign because nice. that to me is germane to what I do in my clinic every day that the the clients that come in they have to be an active agent in their own recovery so they have to have agency in learning you know I give them um, you know uh, homework to do and it's their responsibility to do it because to change things cortically if you come in to see me once a week, that's probably not enough stimulus to really change the homunculus. Like you're going to have to do what I prescribe daily. So where do you see the actual client or patient themselves in their role in this process? Well, certainly in our assessment paradigm, the feedback that we both provide and get from the person being assessed is paramount because 
we don't know what that person is feeling. Mm-hmm. We want to know what does that feel like? What are you, where's your focus? What are you thinking about when we do this? Because, you know, you, you get people who don't even understand your instructions. You want to yeah. know that because right. you're going to interpret something when really they just didn't understand what you, you mean. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't ask, uh, I don't know how many 75-year-olds you've asked to squat, but most of them in my practice look at me like, well, what do you mean? And then I just say, well, sit down and stand up. And they know how to do that quite well. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of importance needs to be placed on communicating with that individual and that individual buying in to what you're asking of them and the purpose of it. And it even goes back to what you said about that biopsychosocial element. Like those people need to feel like it's important that they're doing this um, and we want to know what they're feeling and, and how they're thinking as they go through it because that's really going to give them the most benefit in the end. But to you, is it important that you give them tools also that they can self-assess or you think that's more should be in the hands of some qualified practitioner? I think there's a time and place for self-assessment uh, as well because there are certain times where you don't want every patient to be so dependent on exactly, you that yeah. every single time something goes wrong, mm-hmm. they go, oh, I got to run in and, and, and see right. someone. It's like, well, here's your toolkit. Did you do this, this, and this? Okay, then you, you need to come see me. Otherwise, we have people all the time who, who know what to do. They're like, this is, these are my go-to moves mm-hmm. when you know, I, I throw my back out, right, as an yeah. example, or something <laughs> yeah. like right. that, right? So I hear you. And that, that goes even beyond, that goes much beyond assessment. That's like, these are their own tools for managing their own problems. And they learn that it's exploratory in nature. Like when they're, they're learning the exercises we give them, and if you've communicated well with them, they're telling you what they're feeling and it just informs you further and can make that much more specific and more beneficial to them in the long run. Yeah, you know, that's what's nice about that approach is we're not just doing something to tell someone where their flaws are, but what we're doing is helping people to better understand themselves so that, again, they become self-empowered. Our entire mm-hmm. approach through in Fitness for Consumption is to help people become self-empowered, self-reliant, independent. And the process that you're describing is one that does that. And we want to get really deeper into this. We want to hear a little bit about the actual steps of that, but we're going to do that right after this short break. All right, we're back with our guest, Dr. Patrick Welsh. You know, Patrick, we've sort of kind of skirted around the main issue here. We've given our listeners a really nice overview and sort of philosophical approach to what you do. Let's see if we can't get a bit into the nitty gritty, into the details, right? So what is this thing that you're doing? Um, Give us an example, maybe of the approach, how the assessment works, maybe some of the operational details so that our listeners can get a better understanding of what you guys actually do. Sure, and so I think I'll go back to the example with the soccer players because it it brings in a lot of elements that I think people already understand. People know about ACL injuries, people know about soccer. Let's keep it sort of simple there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things we talk about is understanding the confounding variables that will basically influence the interpretation that we have of our assessment. So do I have a a novice, a a very young athlete, someone who doesn't understand 
what a squat is, doesn't understand their body yet, they're in a growth spurt, um, they have an injury history, they have things that if you don't think about, they are going to dictate your interpretation differently. If someone has a history of you know, an ankle injury that has severely limited their dorsiflexion, you're not going to expect them to hit a certain depth in your squat assessment. Mm -hmm. So injury history, uh, age, developmental stage, um, even motivation plays a role here. We even ask Definitely. people, you know, about their fatigue and motivation coming into the assessment because any, any of our assessment tools that require a fair amount of effort, uh, you know, is going to be influenced if they're just dragging their butts into this assessment. Mm -hmm. So we have to ask a lot of questions before we get into this assessment, understand who the person is, and then we're going to select from a pool of, we have between 30 and 40 protocols that we use, uh, assessments that will match the demands that they face either in their day-to-day -day life or their sport. And it's not going to match perfectly because, you know, you can't test everything. Mm -hmm. But we want to account for as many meaningful components of what they do as we can. And we select those based on the scientific literature as much as it is available for a given sport, a given injury pattern, or what have you. So let me so stop those... you just for one second. So what I'm hearing you say then is you've got a box full of 30 to 40 tools, each one being a, a process, an, a, an exercise, if you will, or, or a sequence of movements, which is an yes. assessment. And then depending on this intake process of understanding who this person is, and all of these factors that influence the person's ability to move, you're going to select from any number of those tools in the box. So there's no specific formula for you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. It's here's a bunch of stuff, pick out the ones that work. That's right. So the, the selection of the tools uh, is different for everyone. There may be a lot of overlap for my basketball players I like these handful mm -hmm. but the the sort of flow the the algorithm comes later in the way we break things down so at the beginning we're trying to gather as much useful information that's going to influence our interpretation because we want to know that ahead of time we want to know the things that are going to bias our interpretation before we even start our assessment mm -hmm. if that makes sense sure just mm -hmm. real quickly is there one move or one assessment in particular that seems to be applicable to the broadest audience? And if so, what is that? Well, I mean, everyone sits down on a chair, everyone uses a toilet, and a lot of people go to the gym. So we, we assess a squat just like everyone else, but how we interpret it and the things that we do through that process are what make us different. And we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that would be great. So let me stop interrupting you. Go ahead, continue. So let's take that soccer athlete example again. And, and we care about ACL injuries, but lots of soccer athletes are also training you know, in the gym. They have strength and conditioning as well. Our, our belief, and, and this is supported in other domains uh, in the scientific literature, is that you can't hang your hat on one finding. You can't look at someone, do one 
squat and know anything about what they're going to do in their sport or day-to-day life. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So the next, the next thing we talk about is internal consistency within that uh, assessment process. So if we want to look at what someone's knee, how someone's knee behaves when they load it up, we will look at someone in a squat, in a single leg squat, in a drop jump from a height, and then in a drop jump with a lateral counter movement. Mm. And what we're looking for is some degree of consistency in the strategies they employ. If they have a bit of a dynamic knee valgus in the counter movement jump, but nothing else, well, what does that really mean? Is it that just have to do with the demand of that assessment Mm -hmm. compared to a squat? But what if they do it in all of them? Well, maybe that tells you that that's the strategy that they go for. And if it is that adolescent female in a higher risk time, maybe I care about that at that moment. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that you have to consider, and this is the first step of our, our feedback process, what we call palliative maneuvers, is making people aware of what they're doing. Does that person even know that their knee is coming in? And so if you have a young athlete who's never been even cued or instructed before, you have to first make people aware. And we do a lot of these things verbally, and, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have talked about before the sort of the art and science of, of cueing and coaching. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to first make sure someone understands what you've said, what you're asking, and then they have to even be aware of their own body and what it's doing. And so you have to give them a chance to be successful in this task by bringing some awareness to that. So let's say this athlete dives the knee in on the squat, the single leg squat, and the drop jump. You're thinking, okay, maybe I care about this for this particular athlete. You have to first give them an instruction. And we can talk about, for our purposes today, we'll say at some point you want them to have some level of alignment, maybe knee over toe-ish if we're... If we're worried about it, um, how you go about saying that we is you know a separate discussion. If we want to talk about external versus internal cueing, but nonetheless, once you give them that opportunity, are they able to do it? Because if they can do that, if they can just hear your cue and they can change to that new constraint you've put on them, this is a much more skilled athlete than someone you tell the same cue and they cannot figure it out. Mm-hmm. Because then you can do the next step in the process, which is understanding, well, why can't they figure out what mm-hmm. you're asking them to do? Yeah, and Patrick, so sometimes it's not that they they can figure it out, they just can't do it. They might not have the strength to do it. There might be a structural issue, they just can't do it. So, um, But what I think really needs to be magnified here is that what I like, what I'm hearing is that you'll look at you know, something and you'll put it across different contexts to see if there's a relationship between these different things as opposed to, um, look, we've talked about the FMS and other models where you look at one discrete movement and then someone will look at that thing. And by the way, they don't, as far as I know, don't put any stock into all the other things you're talking, motivation, fatigue, you know, being looked at in front of an entire, you know, the, just the stress of when you feel like you're being singled out. And they'll look at this one variable and like come up with all these predictive, um, you know, processes based on looking at this one discrete thing. So I really like what I'm hearing is that, you know, you're as opposed to what else is out there. This is so much more thorough. Well, I think it also leads to a question, which is the part that really intrigues me. It doesn't lead to a conclusion yet. It ultimately Mm -hmm. 
there may be some types of conclusions through the algorithm and the process, you know, as you've mentioned. But what it's really doing is saying, if you see something, don't jump to the conclusion yet. Right. Yeah. Let's see if there is anything else that you can do to sort of cross correlate or validate what it is you're seeing before you move on to the next step. And, you know, you made a point about explaining to someone what it is you want them to do or to try to get them understanding what they're doing and what we can try to get them to do. Yet, in my mind, being a motor learning person, it's still possible that they won't get there because they haven't gotten to that stage of learning yet. They're still trying to figure out what it is before yeah. they've exhibited any yeah. indication of being able to control what that thing is. And I think that's a very important part of assessing someone's behavior. Give them an opportunity to figure it out before you tell them that they're broken. Absolutely. Our process, by starting with giving them some sort of verbal cue, and we move them into other types of cueing if needed. If someone can't, you know, control their knees, we might use some sort of input, a band, your hands, uh, a wall, something to give them some feedback. Because when we talk about feedback, we're in part talking about proprioception, their ability to sort of understand their body in space. And so we, we move them down this sort of this line uh, with our palliative maneuvers where, okay, you get some, a verbal opportunity to try to change, what, change your movement based on the constraints I've given you. If that doesn't work, some sort of manual input. From there, if that's not successful as well, we will do a, regress, a regression, what we call a, a, a regressive maneuver, in order to make sure that they still succeed and, and complete the task if possible. Because if they still can't do it, that'll lead us down closer to an answer that might explain what's going on. Do they have some sort of structural problem? Do they have some mm -hmm. other significant, you know, motor deficiency? So, you know, the example I think about a lot and seeing a lot of gym people is that there are people who say, well, I have, I have bad ankle mobility. That's why I, I, my chest drops down when I'm, I'm squatting. And I, most of these people and, uh, are back squatting. And so I'll say, okay, well, let's, let's have a look. And, they body weight only, they squat down, heels either raise or they're in the skier's position. Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's try something else. So we go to the wall, 10 centimeters from the wall in a lunge position. And then I say, keep your heel down on the front foot, try to touch your knee to the wall. And they can do it. I go, okay, well, your ankle looks pretty good. You got 35, 40 degrees. Why is this not transferring when you go to squat? So sure enough, you give them some cues. You you know, when I was a trainer, I, I said it too many times. I would say chest up and this and that, knees out, spread the floor. You can try all sorts of different ways of cueing that person. If they can't get there, you can give them some sort of manual input, something to to change their proprioception, change the, the sensory input, because we know that that input is going to influence the output, what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, some of these guys who are really struggling, I'll put a, a 20 pound dumbbell under their chin, like a goblet squat, and they will mm -hmm. squat right down full ankle dorsiflexion mm -hmm. like it was nobody's business. And they suddenly have beautiful form. And so that tells us something that's very important. They're spending all this time working on their ankle mobility when there's some sort of other sensory motor integration problem. They needed some other input 
and they ultimately can achieve a, a better looking squat even, and stop wasting their time on mobilizing their ankle. Interesting. So you've done these palliative maneuvers, right? You've, you've sort of reorganized the thought process. You're, let's go back to this uh, adolescent female soccer player. Yeah. What's next in the process? So where does that take you in your thought process after you've gone through that stage of assessment? Well, we're looking for a general trend by the end of the assessment. What are the strategies that they, they typically exhibit for the, the exercise-looking protocols we've chosen? Mm -hmm. We then match that to either known injury risk factors or performance goals, training goals uh, that they have. And we tried to match the two. Okay, are you someone who very quickly responds to verbal cues and does everything we want? Well, you can get right into training. You just need good cueing. Mm -hmm. If you're someone like these guys who need, you know, uh, a, a dumbbell under their chin in order to squat properly, you're going to need a different type of input in order to work on your your particular uh, task, which is for these people is squatting. So once we have a trend of all the strategies they do and a trend of the type of feedback they require, do they require verbal, manual, or some sort of regressive process, that's going to ultimately influence what we do. And while we're providing those, those uh, palliative maneuvers, those are carried over into the intervention process. So if always helping someone, cueing someone manually into abduction, improve their squat depth, or adduction for some people. We might use that in an exercise later as part of either their warm-up or something that they do before they go out and train or perform their sport. So we actually take what we did in the assessment and tie it into the choice of exercises and rehab that we use. Patrick, let me, uh, forgive my ignorance here if this is a common term, but I've never heard the term palliative, palliative I can't even pronounce it, palliative, palliative maneuvers before. Is that a term? Why that term? Because a uh, palliative is uh, a term I know, but I've never heard that term. So can you first just explain that choice of uh, words for, for what you're looking at there? Yeah, I mean, we, we just wanted to stay away from the terms corrective was a uh -huh, big one yeah, yeah. because we're not correcting anything. The idea is that, you know, when people think of palliative, it's like we're just trying to make it better, essentially. We're trying to improve it. Now, what is really important to us is when we apply, when we give them a verbal cue, when we do something to them manually and it makes it worse, we actually, that's not a bad thing. That is actually very useful information. So the term is implying that our intent is to try to improve the movement, get it to do what we want within the constraints we have made. But in the end, whatever comes out of that is just more information that we can use. Okay, then I have a follow-up. So how important is reassessment? Because one of my biggest pet peeves with other assessments I saw over the years was that you take up someone's time, you do whatever assessment you do, then you never reassess. Like you just took that hour, you took up someone's time, and then you didn't even compare it to something. So how important is the reassessment? And do you have any sort of fixed schedule of how you go about it? Or is it just totally, you know, individual person to person? So reassessment, and to echo what you've said, is, is yeah, we see that a lot that people aren't 
following up and doing reassessments. For us, reassessment is very important and it's ongoing. I might actually reassess elements of our uh, initial assessment every time I see a person. Mm -hmm. And we know, I mean, just simple strength and conditioning principles, like the first four to six weeks of a, a strength program, like a, any like resistance training program, the, the changes you see are neuromuscular. You haven't right. hypertrophied in the first four weeks. Right. Well, I, you know what? A year ago, I would have said that, but I don't know. All right. I, 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 we should talk about that then for sure. Yeah. Um, but the, the point is, is I did bicep curls this morning, and they're the same size this afternoon. And things Fair. will change. If uh, we go back to fatigue, we go back to motivation, we go back to training uh, load. Where Did I see them right after a tournament and they were, they were broken down? Has a new injury occurred? Um, has you know, eight weeks gone by and they should have progressed their program and maybe that's put some new physical demands on them. There are mm -hmm. so many yeah. reasons why assessment is an ongoing dynamic mm -hmm. process. And again, I will assess 11, 12 things on someone the first day. And after I've done that, I go, well, three of those didn't really tell me anything. So the next time I see them, I'll take eight or nine yeah. that I used and add a few different ones. And it's an ongoing dynamic process. And the, the value of reassessment can't be understated. That's for sure. You know, I think in in sort of comparing or juxtaposing the different types of assessments, and we all know these other things that are out there, it seems to me that what you're doing is creating a process that's informative. So the idea is to get information so that you can use that information in a thought process, in a problem-solving paradigm, whereas... Some of these other things that we call screens or assessments are prescriptive. The purpose is to do them so that we can prescribe exercises. And I think what Gigi was implying, and we, we dance around this a little bit, but you know we may as well come out and say it, that a lot of these screens <laughs> are purposefully trying to find problems because that's the way that we can engage you, right? And mm -hmm. there are fitness organizations and clubs and operators who use them as a sales tool. See, I told you you needed help and we're going to help you. And that's mm -hmm. a prescriptive methodology. I think it is not serving the needs of consumers and the public. I think they're disingenuous at best. And... We as practitioners, we, we get nothing out of it other than, here, follow these steps and we're going to give you a, a recipe and do these exercises and the world will be great. And you know what? It doesn't work. And for us as practitioners, it's not doing us a service either because it leaves us without any skills of our own. And, you know, this, is, this is my soapbox for a second because... What, what you're doing is, well, first of all, you're putting some of the onus back on the practitioner and you're saying, you know what, you got to use your brain here. There's, there's no shortcut to this. And there are things that you need to consider when you're going through this process so that the service you're delivering to your client, your patient, is a real one. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of mm -hmm. interesting that yeah. there are these two approaches, informative and prescriptive, what is your view? And, and, and am I totally off base here? Or do you think that 
this is something that we can overcome or create for everybody in time. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about existing and, and traditional models of, and it goes to the point about it being a screen. It's looking for the presence or absence of a problem. And you, if you go about it differently and go about this as a way of taking information in and saying, what can this person do? You can then uh, lift that person up and get them to do more with what they have and what you know about them. And when I said, sometimes as we're trying to influence their movement and things get worse, well, why is it getting worse when we do this? And that information is also useful. So this is a very much an information gathering process. Um, it's very because of how we uh, provide feedback and get feedback from the person being assessed. I've had so many people tell me that they've learned so much about themselves, especially those people who, like the people that come to do this are very interested in health and fitness. They're people who go to the gym, they're athletes and or weekend warriors. It's not just for elite people. When they've gone through this process, they've learned so much about their body by us playing around with and having them explore and tell us, I feel tension here, pain here. It's very informative for the person being assessed as well. And I think that's only going to benefit people. I, I had people tell me that th they discovered their own weaknesses during my assessment that they want to work on. And I'm like, great. I, you know, I didn't know that that was a thing, but you go ahead. So the more information, the better. I uh, really appreciate that, and, and it's a great approach. We're going to talk about something that is near and dear to Gigi and me uh, when we come back from this brief break uh, to hear about our sponsor, so stick with us. Hello all, Gigi here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high-quality exercise. And now, let's get back to our conversation. All right, Patrick. So this has been awesome, very educational. So I want to bounce off something that PJ mentioned where he was talking about assessments as prescriptive so i want to change the word subtly and talk about assessments as predictive so let me just give you an example so are you familiar with the u.s nfl combine where yep. pl players will come and they'll do bench press 40 yard dash you know different types of assessments but assessments nonetheless and based on how much someone can or cannot bench press or how fast they run you know, really well-seasoned scouts will make predictions about this person's um, how well they'll play in the NFL. And, you know, we've seen thousands of times over guys that kill it in the combine for various reasons that we've touched on, you know, when they get to the NFL level, struggle. So the question I want to ask you is more towards what you're doing every day, and just your thought process in general. Um, how rigid do you think it should be when you do assessments in terms of predictability about future performance? So how, like when you, when you take an assessment, how rigidly do you carry that in terms of how you think someone's going to perform, whether it's in a sport, daily life activities, et cetera? Sure. And first I would say that if anyone expects to assess someone and 
have a crystal ball appear and be able to predict everything. I, I think they have, uh, you know, wishful thinking. I would say that, you know, what we're partially talking about here are key performance indicators. What dictates success in a given sport? And so my bias is in hockey. And, and if you look at the top line guys versus the fourth line guys, there's a couple things that differentiate them. One of them is actually strides per shift. So the best guys take the least amount of strides. So let's ask ourselves why that is. Well, they're more efficient on their edges. They're not doing unnecessary economy strides. Economy of effort. Yeah. Economy of effort. You know, hockey is, is uh, you know, a game of opportunity. You got to get to space and get pucks on the net. And there's, these days, there's so many analytics that we could break this, you know, go money ball on this, right? In uh -huh. terms of it, yeah. all the things that we look at. So from our perspective, we're going money ball on the prerequisite movement competencies someone needs to be able to perform these key performance indicators. I know that hockey players who perform the linear crossover, so crossing over your skates while moving forward, more often than not, are the better performers. And why is that? Well, because of that maneuver that helps you shoot the gap and get space to put a puck on the net. So I'm going to look at their ability to do a linear crossover. How well are their hips moving? How are the, the prerequisite uh, movements required to do something that contributes to a key performance indicator in their sport? I am not doing the skill-based training of you know, can your puck hit the top corner? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have to make sure we understand that, both for when it comes to um, uh, risk and performance. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you, I worked with a number of NHL players who would train for the combine. They were like, well, I always failed this one movement screen. Can we work on that this summer? And I go, well, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know if this is a good use of our time. So I think what you're asking is like, how well does a bench press predict anything in a given sport and therefore what kind of expectations can we have from a movement um, assessment mm -hmm. when we look at these prerequisite functions we're looking at just the building blocks of what they need um, and only some of the potential factors that contribute to performance and injury as we mentioned earlier there are so many factors mm -hmm. outside of just movement so we're looking to take a bigger piece of the small piece of the pie that we have because I can't influence the fact that all these these female athletes hurt their knees on turf there is nothing I can do about that so the parts that I can control the prerequisite movement competencies this is where we're focused on and taking as much of that as we can mm -hmm. cool so now that you mentioned prerequisites uh, I want to get into the part of this where what you're doing is near and dear We've been talking about something that we call a sensory motor model. So the sensory motor model is very simply, there's some input that we bring into the system. Let's call that the sensory part. We gather information, we process that information, and then the result of that is this movement outcome, this output. So it's an input information processing output type of model that helps us to better understand to your point from the beginning of this, why people do what they do and what are those factors that influence their ability to do that. And what's really striking is that you've taken this and you've incorporated it into 
an assessment process, which is unprecedented, right? People don't do this. You've talked about substrates. You've talked about constraints, right? You've talked about this psychological state and emotional readiness. These are all things that Gigi and I have been discussing as part of a skill acquisition model. And that's the tie-in to our season discussion on skill and the athletic movement assessment. So help our listeners understand a little bit how you've introduced this sensory motor model into this assessment approach. What does it mean? How does it work a little bit? Or at least what should our listeners think about as they consider the assessment model? Sure. Well, let's start at a high level. And I think what you're saying is there's an input, integration, output, right? Mm -hmm. So the output is what the traditional models would look at. You know, can you get to a certain depth? Can you, your arm reach the wall? Can you, what have you? And we focus a lot on that. But what we don't focus enough on is how the input side of things influences that output, as well as how uh, the feedback, the knowledge of performance, the knowledge of results is going to influence that. And so that knowledge, when I squat, okay, the person assessing me squat has some knowledge of how I performed it and did I achieve the depth or whatever they had asked me to do. As the person doing the squat, I'm also aware. What did I feel? Did I feel I achieved the task? Did I do it well? That is going to feed back into many of the inputs that are part of the sensory motor model. And so what, as healthcare practitioners, a lot of us focus on is the physical side of it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what's your strength? What's your endurance? What are your, your bony anatomy? All the things that, you know, we, we studied. But it goes back to some of the examples I talked about earlier with even just the cognitive side of things. Do people understand the instructions? Do they understand the task that you're asking them to do? So what we're really focusing more on is that input side. We're we're spending more time, taking more care to consider as many of the inputs as we can. Those are the things that are going to change the interpretation of the output. If someone doesn't understand you, they they don't understand what you're asking of them, they are going to perform that task a way that you might consider failing them if we were a pass-fail model. So Mm -hmm. when we focus on being better at delivering that instruction, um, we know that our output is not going to be biased by a bad input, a faulty input, so to speak. So we're, we're trying to look at the interaction between as many of these inputs as possible. We're trying to account for them whenever possible. And we use that understanding to, to influence or to understand the interpretation of the output and what we see with every protocol exercise we do. Yeah, now I don't want our listeners to sort of focus exclusively on the instruction part. Sure. Because that's... And that's a critically important input. And we all know that if we give people bad instruction, we could pretty much expect a bad result. But input comes in many forms. So input is what are the proprioceptors telling the brain about the length of muscles and the tension that's existing on the muscles? What are the biomechanical factors that are acting on my body while I'm preparing to do this movement? 
you know, my body mass, where is my center of gravity? We spent three episodes talking about center of mass and postural alignment and movement efficiency. All of those things are input. So, you know, if, if our listeners are just kind of glomming onto this notion that I just have to give the right instruction and everything's going to be copacetic, they're missing a big part of what is comprising the input model. Right. And just to give you even another example of that, and this is a good example of when we backfill our understanding of what we're doing with new literature. And we know mm -hmm. that there is a difference in the biomechanics of how someone lands from a vertical drop jump on different surfaces, whether they're landing on turf, hardwood, or concrete. Is that person in shoes? Is this person a hockey player and you're assessing them in shoes? Is this person a hockey player and you're assessing them barefoot? How is that going to influence what you do? Typically, when we do one of our protocols, most of our protocols we do bare feet because we, we're interested in a ground-up approach, understanding that you know, for most sports, you know, maybe not swimming and some aerial sports, the foot is very important because it's, it's that first sort of uh, response to ground reaction forces, and it's very important. But for my figure skaters, I might actually assess them in their shoes, in, in a stiffer shoe, because it's going to more likely match where and how they're experiencing that proprioceptive input in their sport. So that's another piece of the input model that we're going to consider and that we're going to change for every single athlete in front of us. I might do uh, some of these protocols on a figure skater and a basketball player, but I might change the surface. I might change the shoe. I might change a whole bunch of other things because that's going to influence the output. And Patrick, do you consider, so PJ touched on it earlier, but what we know about stages of learning is that experts extract meaningful data from the environment that are probably really abstract to a novice. Like a novice, if you put them on rollerblades and you ask them to do it, like they are just trying to survive, keep their center of mass over their base of support. So the stage of learning is the input has to directly reflect their stage of learning as well. At least that's the way I would see it. How do you see it? Yeah, absolutely. And so we, part of our intake process is getting a better understanding of that person's uh, experience with movement assessment, their experience in the gym, their experience in sport, and we make some judgments based on the age of the individual. If you ask a, a seven-year-old to squat, they might not even know what that word means. Um, so you... And then if you ask someone who's 20 and lives in the gym how to squat, they've already tied that to something that they do every day, and that's their version of a squat. So, I mean, I think about it all the time. I get patient, like these type of gym people who come in, and I ask them to touch their toes, and they show me this beautiful, like, Romanian deadlift <laughs> hinge, and I go, well, why would you do that that way? That just, is that how you tie your shoes in a hinge? <laughs> So where that person is cognitively, what their, their stage of learning is, uh, is very important because that bites on the, the integration side and will influence that output. So we have to consider as many of these things as possible. Otherwise, we're just going to make faulty conclusions. Yeah. All right. There are two things that you talked about that I need to, I need to really hit on. And I want to come back to this experiential thing because we did something together with your kids that I want to talk uh, to our audience about. But just getting back to um, 
the conditions and, you know, being shot or being barefoot or these other things. Just my own experience. Um, some time ago, I had an opportunity to attend the Rangers uh, physical testing session prior to the season. And there was an assessment that they were doing, speaking of assessments, with it was mostly with the goaltenders. And I don't know if you're familiar with the device, but it's a huge panel. It's like an enormous TV screen and it's got an array of lights on it. It's a grid and there's a light in each grid. And there's probably, you know, I want to say it's about 100 by 200. So there are a lot of lights in this thing. And it's broken up into four quadrants. And this is a response time test. So what they do is they put the athlete in front of this panel and a light goes off and the athlete has to reach up and touch the light, and it measures their response time, not reaction time, right? We, we need to distinguish between them. Reaction time is the time between the stimulus and the first observable response, right? The twitch, but response time is how long does it take you to actually get to the light? So that's the motor component. And so what they would do is they would test these athletes, and they would see if there was one visual quadrant, upper left, lower right, where they were slower, and so then they know if it's a goalie, right, they know. Are they working on their stick side? Are they working on their glove hand? Like, what are they working on? But here's the problem. They set this thing up in a room on a carpeted floor, and the guys are in their sneakers. And I said to the strength coach at the time, I said, are you sure you want to do it this way? And he said, well, of course. Why, why should we do it any other way? I said, well, are they playing goalie on a carpet? Are they in their sneakers? Like, Put them on a slide board for crying out loud and have them do it if that's what you want to do so that suddenly their feet may be slipping and moving. And, and by the way, what goalie is going to face a shot under normal conditions with nobody in front of them? I mean, the, the, the name of the game in hockey now is to put everybody in front of the net and screen the goalie and tip the puck from all over the place, right? A tip in. So to me, that was absolutely inane. You had this device that's supposed to measure something, but it didn't. they didn't consider any of the inputs that are affecting goalie performance. And by the way, there was no correlation between that test and goals against average. So what are you doing? Well, it looks good, though, PJ. You got to understand. It looks good. <laughs> it does. It, it was brilliant. Okay, the other point was... You mentioned queuing and you mentioned experience. And we had a conversation one day and I said, how much of a client's or patient's experience weighs into what you see? So when you have them do something, they're doing it based on what they currently understand and what their experience has been with that particular task. You said the squat, you ask somebody to squat, they're going to perform the movement that they understand they're supposed to do. It may not necessarily be indicative of their ability to do the movement, but just this is how they've been instructed or think they need to do it. So you did a little experiment, which I thought was fascinating. So why don't you tell our listeners about that? Sure. Well, my, uh, my business partner with AMA, uh, Dr. Brian Weinberg, and I, we both have uh, kids the same age. They're three days apart. Um, so we like to do some you know, developmental movement science experiments on them, you know, definitely, you know, we're not publishing this material, but uh, nonetheless, it's... I promised my wife I wouldn't do that with our kids, <laughs> but I did it anyway. <laughs> but nonetheless, some interesting things have come out of it uh, as they get a little bit older. So they were probably two and a half at the time. 
and we didn't we didn't sort of prompt them we just you know put the camera on, on them and and had them standing and we said touch your toes and uh, I think it was my son first thing he does is he bends forward at the waist touches his toes and he comes back up and then I don't say anything good bad I, I give him no feedback I just say okay touch your toes second time he squats squats right down touches his toes perfect my partner does the same to his son and first thing his son does is squat down and touch his toes ask him to do it again second time he bends forward at the waist so same instruction touch your toes no previous cognitive you know thought process about oh I usually squat or I usually do this and they did the exact opposite thing so you know that's a one-off instance but it illustrates the the bigger point that if you give someone an instruction they're going to do something based on either some preconceived idea their movement history um, or just where they're at at that moment and you can't know for sure unless you dig deeper and you need to look at all these other inputs you need to see how they perform in other situations so it's really interesting to do that especially with you sort of take out the associative stage of learning because they're not thinking about squats and hip hinges at that age. Yeah, Patrick, that's interesting. We talked about it very briefly in our first season, but there's something called dynamic systems theory, which is a large, very complex theory of basically how we organize movement. But what it comes down to is that people move in the most efficient way possible. And so like what you're seeing some exploration there, and if you kept saying it, a hundred times it would be interesting to see like if they settled on one particular based on their structure limb length all the stuff what was just the most efficient way for them to do that and and so they'll do efficient until something until their brain gets in the way because as I mentioned to you the the gym rats who come in and I ask them to touch their toes or bend forward they will hip hinge and like let their hamstrings like tighten right up just to get down as if they're protecting their back or something. So efficiency can be unlearned as well. And that's when we deal with aging athletes, previously injured athletes, people with fear avoidance. We have to break through that as well because that's another type of confounding variables, what they're thinking about. Like what are their concerns and ideas about this movement that you're asking them to do? Because that'll change what you see as well. You know, I think we had discussed at one point um, when we give someone a movement to perform, maybe not using the common term or phraseology around that movement because it does potentially bias someone towards a particular type of movement or output. So something that our listeners might consider when they're watching people do something and they're trying to get information from that when they're using it as an informative process. Call it something else. Make up a name for it. Give someone a movement goal and say, here, here's the movement goal. Do it. So that we've eliminated, at least as much as possible, this experiential bias that tends to confound the output. Because we don't know if they're doing it because that's the only way they can or because that's the way they think they know to do it. Yeah, and I think uh, sort of restricting too much will have a negative um, consequence. If you look at a lot of sport, it's highly variable in, in what happens and the way the body moves. And yeah, we train people in the gym and maybe some people do more variable 
type training methods than others, but you know, you might, you pick apart someone and say squat this way exactly. But if you were to ask someone to hop over a fence, are you going to say, okay, first put your foot into the sixth link and then put your right foot up onto the bar and then pull with your left arm. You would never do that. You would say, get over that fence and see what they did. Right. So why are we changing the way that we approach that for these, you know, these dance moves in the gym to do it a very, a certain way? And I think that leaves us to our final question, which we really pose to all of our guests and to ourselves as we're wrapping up the episode, what really matters? And we always let let our guests go first. So Patrick, you know, you've developed this with Brian. It's a really good process. I can't wait to experience it live uh, because we've talked about it, but what really matters to you? I think that ultimately, and the reason we still do this is that we're not done in our understanding of movement, movement science, how assessments you know, improve outcomes, both from an injury um, recovery standpoint, from reducing risk, from enhancing performance. There's still a lot to be had. I think if I was you know, listening, I would be thinking, I need to continue to learn more and more uh, about this stuff. This is like, you can't reduce it down to a very simplistic model. So if people were thinking what matters, it's, it's digging deeper. It's understanding all of the influences that will dictate how someone moves and not sort of reducing the complexities of human movement to a cookie cutter approach. And you, you need to develop a thought process, a model that can help you in any situation. I have not seen the majority of athletes in the world. I have seen however many hundreds or thousands of patients. Every time I assess someone, I learn something new. And I learn it because the process that we have gives me the tools to problem solve no matter what comes at me. So that's the kind of model that I think people should be striving for is something that gives them options and isn't tying them down to some sort of cookie cutter model that ultimately won't give them all the answers when they need it. Awesome. Gigi, what really well, matters? Let me take a, a different approach. So our conversation has largely been in sort of the clinical arena, which obviously based on what you do every day makes sense. But let me take it to the gym level for a minute. Um, and what I would say is, look, if you really have a goal, assessment matters. So even if you're just sadly, you know, when I started as a trainer prior to iPhones, we all walked around with clipboards and had training, uh, you know, routines on paper and we would write stuff down and I don't see any assessment done ever anymore. And a lot of it, again, I don't want to go too far on this tangent, but if you have someone standing on a Bozu ball trying to do a Turkish get up for eight minutes, like how do you even assess that? Like, what are you looking at? So if you really have a goal and by the way, it's totally fine if you don't, if you just exercise because someone's telling you you should do it or you just do it because you want to do it and you don't have a particular goal in mind, that's fine. But if you really have a goal, which most people come into a trainer with a particular goal, you have to assess. And whether it's just tracking the weight you're lifting or the time you're spending doing your cardio, you have to do some form of assessment and you have to reassess. Because if you do it once, if you take up someone's time for two hours and then you never look at it again, what meaningful 
data have you gotten? The whole point is that if you're going to do an assessment, you've got to continue to reassess to see if you're getting closer towards your goal or not. And I might be old fashioned, but I just don't know any other way of getting towards your goal other than what is an assessment? It's just an evaluation. You have to continue to evaluate as you're, you know, making strides towards whatever your goal is. And like I said, if you're just exercising and you have no particular goal, I'm also sympathetic to some people. I know clients that have tried the aura ring and they feel overwhelmed with too much data. So I'm sympathetic to that side too. But what I would say what really matters is I think a lot of our listeners who are either fitness professionals or people that are really interested in their own health, they probably have some sort of goal. And if you have some sort of goal, just assess something. You have to assess what you're doing so you can see if you're moving, if you're trending in the right direction. So that's what really matters to me. You know, I find that being a human movement scientist is a very humbling thing. And the reason I say that is because every time I think I've figured out how things work, somebody does something to prove how wrong I am. And I'm constantly being reminded that I don't have the answers. As much as I would like to think that I do, I don't. So what I've learned in my life is not to try to seek answers, but to try to ask better questions. And a process that allows you to observe more carefully, to think more effectively, and to ask probing questions that at least takes you in a direction of learning and improving someone's life is an amazing thing. And so let's dispense with the prescriptive tools, the tools that are telling everybody how bad they are, and let's use these tools for our own purposes so that we can get better at what we do and then pass that on to those people with whom we're working. So that's what really matters to me. Um, Dr. Patrick Welsh, it has been a real pleasure to Absolutely. have you on our show. We are going to put your website information, your contact information in our show notes. We'll post it on Instagram so that people can reach you and see what you're doing. Um, I know that you're getting your roadshow back on the road, are you not? Yeah, we got a, a Toronto area course coming up in April, and we're looking to get back into the, the United States as soon as they'll have us. So uh, stay tuned. We got North America planned for sure, and if we get further out, we will let everyone know. That's the plan. Well, we think that everyone should go take your course and your workshop. It would be tremendously informative. Um, and that about wraps things up. So for me, thanks to our listeners. Thanks to our guest, Gigi. Thanks to you as yeah, well. Um, we'll, to we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Patrick.